Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Everything Under the Sun is sponsored by NHTSA. A child's body temperature rises three to five times faster than an adult's, and leaving a child in a hot vehicle can lead to their death very quickly. Tragically, in 2020, 24 children died of pediatric vehicular heat stroke, and many of these incidents occurred when parents or caregivers simply forgot the child was in the car. Please set yourself reminders on your cell phone or place something you'll need in the back seat so you don't forget your child. Always look for your baby before you lock. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast with stories, interviews, and information which combine the expertise of our great AccuWeather meteorologists along with the knowledge of a family of experts and friends that we invite to come back often, all with a focus on weather and climate-related subjects in an effort to weatherproof your life. We are in the midst of our series of episodes dedicated to the spring of 2021. This is episode 9 in that series, and we are already halfway through the final month of meteorological spring, and we're at the very beginning of solar summer. So we've got lots to talk about on this week in EUTS. We will see the first rays of focus segment focus on billions of bugs that will be coming to the surface after 17 years below ground. The largest brood of the bunch and all of the cyclical cicadas are about to take over the sounds and sights of early summer in the Northeast. We'll get you all you need to know about this amazing thing that actually has a pretty good weather tie-in. Then we'll head across the pond to the UK and check in with Chief Executive of the Royal Meteorological Society, Dr. Liz Bentley, getting an update on the submissions for this year's Weather Photographer of the Year contest in association with AccuWeather. The uh, submission deadline's coming up at the end of June. We'll get you all the details again so you can check your camera, your digital archives, even your mobile device for a new division opening up this year. Can't wait to catch up with Liz here later on this episode. And then In our final segment, I bugged (laughs) Bill Dagger to join me in our final segment to talk about our normal weather for the weekend and week beyond segment. Certainly the northern tier of our country has tried to rebound from some very chilly and damp weather of late. We'll see how that progression goes and everything else as you navigate your way through this upcoming weekend and week beyond. Friends, I'm your host, AccuWeather Meteorologist Dean DeVore, and it is time to talk about everything under the sun. Over the next couple of months, billions of cicadas will emerge in the northeastern part of the United States after spending the last 17 years below ground. Over the span of the next few weeks, they will molt, mate, and make the next batch of brood X that will go underground again, only to come back to us here above ground in 2038. It's that something that we only see, what, three to five times in our lifetimes for most people, especially who live in the friendly confines of the Northeast. As you will find out, there are other broods with not as many members that come out at other times. So while you may experience other 17-year cicada cycles, this one is the granddaddy of them all. The National Pest Management Association is a nonprofit trade association founded in 1933 and represents the interests of the professional pest management industry and pest control professionals in the United States. It's Chief Entomologist and Vice President of Technical and Regulatory Affairs is Dr. Jim Fredericks, who earned his PhD in Entomology and Wildlife Ecology from the University of Delaware. It's been a long while since he's been on with the program with us, and we are happy to welcome Jim back to Everything Under the Sun. So it's got to be an exciting time for people that deal with insects and bugs as we get ready now for... um, what I hear is uh, we call it brood X. You know, we have generations that have uh, Roman numerals now. Now, uh, I guess the cicadas have different designations. And it was interesting as I was going through, I, I, I've been learning a lot here the last couple of, uh, of weeks about the different kinds of cicadas. Now, we get cicadas every year towards the end of the summer. Those are what we call right seasonal cicadas that uh, emerge 
at the end of the summer, basically here where we live in the mid-Atlantic. But this is a different cicada. This is a cicada that goes away. It's a periodic cicada. And they come out when the soil temperatures reach 64 degrees. I think that's the the magic number. And so they actually come out earlier in the year. So um, we're already seeing the emergence in some of the uh, mid-Atlantic states and areas uh, south of the Mason-Dixon line and and out west. I think a lot of us in the um, interior northeast are waiting probably a couple of more weeks. But exciting time is it happens once every 17 years, and it's going to be quite an emergence, it looks like, over the next couple of weeks. You're right. And this is really an exciting time for for entomologists and insect or bug enthusiasts all over the (laughs) coast because uh, this brood 10 uh, cicada. So the the different um, periodical cicadas are grouped by uh, by Roman numerals. Mm-hmm. You know, we there was lots of talk. I don't know two decades ago about Generation X, the slacker generation, <laughs> right. part of that that group, and we've gone the uh, gone the way of the the millennials and Gen Z, I guess. But Brood Ten uh, will be emerging in uh, you know across fifteen states in the uh, along the East Coast and in the parts of the Midwest as well. And this is one of the periodical cicada broods that covers a number of major metropolitan areas. So lots of people will be experiencing these cicadas that will be emerging over the next couple of weeks. We will literally see billions of cicadas emerge across these states, and they will begin to make quite a racket as they sing uh, together and chorus to find mates. Jim, the uh, the cicadas at the end of the year that we we're typically used to, it's noisy, but it has a, it has a rhythm to it. They kind of increase, they get to a point, and then they decrease. The earlier cicadas, these this brood is a seventeen year brood, but apparently I didn't realize this. There's actually a, a cycle of some broods that are only thirteen years, right? So there's a different time span in some of those. But their song is a little different, and it's really loud and it's really intense. I have a brother uh, who lives in Alexandria, and I remember last time around with this brood, he said it sounded like a jet engine in his backyard for hours and hours and hours. It just was hard to sleep, think, or do anything here at the height of this. So the, only the males sing, um, and they're calling for mates, and they they sing in, in unison. They're trying to be attractive to the females, but there are just so many of these periodical cicadas at any one time, and, and scientists have measured the, the volume of this sound. And they, they say that it can reach up to a hundred decibels. And so, wow, that's some loud noise. That's as, as loud as Beaver stadium in a big football game, or even, you know, there's when we're, when we got a big play going on. So yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's quite incredible. And when you compare that to the annual cicadas that we, that we hear and see every autumn, well, not autumn, I guess, August, they call them the dog often called the dog day cicada. And it's- right, because they come out towards the, the latter part of August. To me, it's almost a sad song. For me, it's almost like summer's coming to an end when I hear those, right? Summer's coming to an end, school's about to start, but it's part of the soundtrack of our summer. And you'll hear them and they're, you know, you hear them kind of drone and on and off uh, throughout the day. But these cicadas will just, these periodical cicadas that will be emerging now, and then we'll be singing over the next uh, couple of weeks right up probably through June and maybe the beginning of July. There's just a lot more cicadas singing at any one time. And so that's the difference. We are talking with Dr. Jim Fredericks, uh, chief entomologist for NPMA. And let's talk a bit, of, bit about the life cycle. So what we see is the emergence and here is the emergence after they've been, in, what, in the larva state for the 16, 17 years underground. And the first thing they do is they're trying to get up out of the ground when they're emerging, get up onto the side of a tree or up into a tree usually. And that's when they kind of split their shell. They come out and then that's when they start the racket. Is that how that goes here in the next week? That's right. You know, you ought to get your junior entomologist merit back. <laughs> Brother, you, you, that, I've been, I've like been a, an amateur entomologist. I've, I've always liked bugs and insects. But yeah, that's the, uh, I've, just, I've loved I've loved to watch this stuff. But yeah, that it is pretty, pretty cool. You describe it so well. And so these cicadas have been underground for the last 17 years. These cicadas hatched from eggs 17 years ago. So the high school graduating class this year, they were infants when Mm. cicadas hatched. The iPhone didn't exist when these cicadas hatched. (laughs) You know, the last episode of Friends aired the same year that these cicadas hatched. So it's just like 
You're making me feel old, Jim. Stop. You wrap your head around this. They've been underground. And what they've been doing is they haven't been dormant. They haven't been sleeping. They've been feeding and growing. And so what uh, nymph cicada, so the immature state of the cicada, they're true bugs, are called nymphs. These nymphs will feed on tree roots. And so they're actually feeding on the xylem, which is the water conducting elements within the tree roots. And they grow very slowly and they go through a... Do they look like kind of a grub, what I would call a grub, like kind of like a little kind of fat, wormy thing? Or what do they look like at that stage? No, they aren't kind of a worm form. Um, and if it was, that would be in a group of the insects that would have complete metamorphosis. And I gotcha, right. Grub or a worm form instead right. are true bugs. And so they look not so different from the adults, except that they don't have wings. Wings, right. They don't need them underground, so I have them, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And in fact, when you take a close look, um, you'll see um, these nymphs as they crawl up. Because when they crawl up out of the ground after 17 years, uh, when that soil temperature reaches 64 degrees and we have a nice warm rain, uh, they'll emerge from the, from the ground through holes that they open up that are about dime-sized holes. You see them climb up the trunk of a tree and they'll leave behind that nymphal shell. As you described it, that nymphal exoskeleton will split down its back. Right down the middle. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. And, and the adult uh, cicada will emerge. And so that nymph, nymphal shell that you see on the tree is essentially what that, that nymph has looked like for the past 17 years, albeit in successively smaller stages uh, from when they first hatched. Do they molt a little bit when they're when they're underground? So they they go through a couple of those exoskeletons before they get come up. They will, uh, yeah. And just like all insects, so when you when you're carrying your your skeleton on the outside of your body, there's only so much room to grow. And so um, insects, like all arthropods, are going to go through a, a molt. And each one of these stages, they'll emerge from that old skeleton, and then their new exoskeleton is relatively pliable and soft. And so they'll puff up, they'll stretch that skeleton out, and then they'll essentially grow into their skeleton until they have to molt again uh, into that next successively larger stage. So now they've climbed up the tree, the split. Uh, now we're, we're into the final form of the cicada. This has wings. When I see at least the seasonal ones, there is some flying, but it seems like to me, they're really only flying out of necessity at that point. The, the wings aren't something they use a lot. Is the uh, these uh, cyclical ones, do they have a little bit of a different pattern in that? Or is it kind of the same where they're, they're basically coming up, they get into that final form, they're mating, they're, they're using their mating call to find someone to mate with. And how long does that process take? How long are they emerged and into this final form and in that period is it a couple of days where they're they're alive in that state and and trying to uh, to mate and reproduce they'll actually be in that in that kind of chorusing singing looking for mate stage for a couple of weeks so maybe okay. six weeks and you're right they don't they, you know they're not you don't think of them as just buzzing around they will use their wings for for uh you know locomotion so they're going to move from one place to another using their wings but they can sometimes be kind of clumsy. Mm. After all, you know, they've been living underground in the dark for 17 years. Right. Got this new pair of wings. Right. <laughs> you know, not a whole lot of practice. And so, uh, you know, they, they'll sometimes be a little bit clumsy. But what they'll do is as they when they come up out of the ground, they, they emerge from that nymphal shell. Their exoskeleton hardens up, their wings harden up, and then they'll fly up into the treetops. And that's where all the action happens. The ones that we see on the trunk and, and in the lower branches, they're just kind of starting the process, right? All the all the good stuff's going on up top. Typically, yes. And so they'll go up and join this, you know, chorus of males and they'll be calling for females. Um, the female, if she uh, likes the song of a particular male, she'll come over and actually, she doesn't make any sounds. Uh, well, she doesn't make sound in the same way the males do, but she'll come over and she'll flutter her wings. She'll flutter her wings. And that's the indication that, uh, she's interested in that particular male. And so they, they use their wing a wings a little bit in that courtship process as well. But for the most part, not great flyers. And so don't be surprised if some if you're driving down the road and some cicadas bounce off your windshield mm. or you're <laughs> out in the in the woods and you're observing these cicadas and some of them might, you know, 
land on you or or bounce off of you. They're not interested in in us at all. We just right. They're not they're not biting insects. They don't bite at all. They're just it, it's kind of scary, and it's because they're they're more freaked out by getting on you than as you are of them. And it's sometimes it's just because they're big and clumsy, like you said. It's just. It's disconcerting mostly when you have a real up close and personal interaction, I think, with a cicada. Uh, and then so once they pick their mate um, and they go through the courtship and the mating process, how much longer then are they alive in that form? And then what happens next? Uh, does the female start her trek down to the ground and start burrowing into the ground? How's that work? Uh, so this is cool. This is actually the a really really amazing part of this whole process. The females will lay their eggs in the trees, ah, and they actually will um, use um, what's called an ovipositor, right? It's essentially a um, kind of a, a device at the at the tail end of their abdomen, and they'll they'll slice into young uh, green twigs at the end of uh, at the end of a tree branch, and into that slice she'll insert eggs. Um, a single female will lay up to 500 eggs over the course of a couple of weeks. Just from one male? I mean, that's all from the one she male? She would essentially need, yeah, a single male. Right. And then when those eggs hatch, they fall from the trees to the ground. Ah. Uh. And then find their way burrow into the ground. So they might, you know, find their way into, a, you know, a crack in the ground or, you know, find uh, find some way to start to begin their trek and burrow down. And begin that 17 year underground uh, life cycle. So or nap. Well, it's not really a nap. Like you said, I think that's the, the, the misconception is that they're napping they're, but they're not, they're actually down there feeding and, and growing over those 17 years. That's kind of the, the, the thing that is really pretty amazing that they're, they're not especially active, right? They're not, they're not, you know, running around They're They're slow moving. It's relatively cold. Um, so where they're where they're feeding, it's you know uh, as a as a cold blooded animal, insects rely on their outside temperature to kind of give them their the the ability to to move quickly or to be more active. And so in warmer temperatures, typically cold blooded animals are going to be more active. But temperatures are relatively cool but stable even through the winter. And so their their life process their their growth is is slow. And over the course of those seventeen years, they're they're feeding, eating, and then growing and, and eventually emerging. Now, one of the things that has um, puzzled uh, scientists, entomologists for years is why 17 years? Right. Why that time frame? And how does a cicada know when 17 years is up? Because mm -hmm. all of these cicadas are going to be emerging 17 years later. And uh, what entomologists have, have determined is that they're able to count the years essentially, by the changes in fluid flow through those tree roots. When the tree flushes and the leaves come out, they're able to detect those subtle changes in the, in the fluid dynamics within, those, uh, within the xylem and the roots. So that like clicks off the thing in the brain. Oh, that's year one, right? Well, it's, not clear, it's not clear how they keep track. That's the question is, like, right. you know, how do, they, how do they ever remember that they're up to year 12, <laughs> 13 or 14? Um, but but cicadas can sometimes be tricked if there's an early, uh, you know, the, in the in the spring. Sometimes we'll get in January or February, kind of a you know those real warm days. And in some cases, some some trees may even leaf out. If that's followed by a, a hard frost, and then uh, the leaves then come out again in March or April, the cicadas will sometimes count that as two years. And cicada broods will emerge a year early in those places because they've perceived that as a, a two-year cycle in the matter of just a couple of months. We're talking with Dr. Jim Fredericks. He is the chief entomologist of the National Pest Management Association. I guess, you know, now that some of us may understand this workings of the cicadas a little bit better, one thing that uh, for those of us who love our trees and stuff in our yards, are they damaging at all if they're if they're eating along those roots and then they're coming up into the trees for their for their mating and 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 whatever is this damaging to trees is that a misconception or what do we tell folks about that aspect of this it's a great question dean and pest uh, control professionals get that question all the time um, but unlike termites and cockroaches and bed bugs and ticks cicadas are not dangerous, they don't cause any damage. So as you mentioned earlier, they don't bite, they don't sting. 
they typically will not cause any damage to your trees or shrubs around the yard. What you will notice is that at the end of the season, um, so maybe when July arrives, uh, what we will see is in places where there were large emergencies, you'll see the ends of some tree branches will die and you'll see some leaf death at the end of because of because of the la- eggs being laid there, right? That's right. That's okay. right. But but the cicadas don't harm the trees. In fact, they're helpful in a way. Um, you know, you know, they wouldn't want to kill a tree or hurt a tree because that's got to be their food source for the next 17 years, right? Yeah, 17 year lifeline. You don't want to <laughs> um, you don't want to you don't you don't want to break the food train, that's for right. sure. But by burrowing through the soil, they're actually aerating the soil. Mm nutrients to the soil. Um, There's going to be a lot of cicadas that will die over the next, um, you know, six, six to eight weeks. Um, And that, uh, that will become, you know, as, as those decompose, uh, those nutrients go back into the soil. And so it's all part of the cycle. Um, So they're not going to be damaging the plants with the exception. If you have um, extremely, uh, you know, if you just this spring, maybe planted some seedlings, if cicadas lay enough eggs on those that all of the leaves die, all of the branches are affected, that could have some, some impact. So if you're concerned about those types of, you know, and I'm talking about young, young, young saplings, uh, something saplings, within a couple of years old, you can cover those with some, uh, you know, with, with some netting or something like that to keep those cicadas off for a couple of weeks. Or pull them off if, you, if you're a little, uh, <laughs> if you're adventurous and want to have a little fun. They're not fun to hold. I remember as a kid, my dad made me hold one one time. And of course, then it starts buzzing in your hand and you get all freaked out as a little kid. Maybe that's why I'm an amateur entomologist. <laughs> uh, Dr. Fredericks, one other thing I have noticed here in Pennsylvania where we are, an absolute overabundance of ticks this year. I think uh, worse than I've seen in a while. Uh, I don't know if that was just a, a combination of wetness, temperature, and everything. But you know, this is uh, something that I keep warning people. I play a lot of disc golf. I know a lot of folks. You know, this is uh, prime fishing time now. Trout season is underway, and it's uh, a lot of fly fishing and stuff. Uh, so I know a lot of friends that have been out and about, and 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 have been having problems with that. Um, obviously with people out and about looking for these cicadas and kind of looking, that may be kind of a double-edged sword here where we've got a tick problem, which may lead to problems uh, while you're trying to look at a different bug here. Is that true? It could be. And, you know, this has been, uh, we, we've, we've heard reports of lots of tick activity all along, uh, certainly along the East Coast, uh, in the mid-Atlantic for sure. And uh, as people are out and about this this spring, you might be out cicada watching, you might be fly fishing, you might be uh, doing, you know, something else out in, uh, out in, in, in the woods or in gardening, the, getting ready. Gardenings. Yeah. This is the time of year and there are lots of ticks that are active. And so we recommend that you definitely, um, you know, wear repellent and, uh, and do you need DEET. Is that, do they need, do they need the higher DEET levels for, for those or, or, or can you go with the more safer varieties of, of repellents for ticks? You know, what you ought to look for is whatever, whatever tick repellent you're using. Um, there are a number of different active ingredients. DEET is great. Look for an EPA registration number on okay. repellent um, because what that's going to do is that will tell you that it has been, it has gone through rigorous testing um, and EPA ha- and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has determined that it's safe for use on humans. It doesn't cause um, adverse effects to humans or the environment. And it's been shown to be effective as well uh, at, for protecting you against ticks. Um, so that's going to be that's going to be something to look for. Look for that EPA registration number. And then the other thing, Jim, I, I you know, be diligent about checking yourself, checking your kids, checking your dog. Uh, just anytime you're outside for any length of time. I mean, it, it doesn't take more than a moment for that tick to jump up on you. So make sure you're checking. And then I've been carrying it, uh, one of those little, uh, there's different names for it. I've heard it, tick twister or nipper or tick ease, that thing where you can quickly uh, try to pull off the tick that's not, you know, just starting the burrowing process before it can get deep uh, dislodged. And I've had a number of people that think that that probably saved them because if, you know, they hadn't noticed it and gotten to it quickly, it could have been problematic. Yeah, removing uh, ticks in particular, people are concerned about deer ticks, the, the, all that we call the black-legged tick. 
because it can transmit the pathogen that causes Lyme disease. Right. Um, removing those ticks promptly is really important. Um, they've shown that um, it takes approximately 24 hours or so for that pathogen to be transmitted. And so if you can find that tick and remove it um, quickly, that's going to be uh, the key to, uh, to one of the keys to disease prevention. We actually have um, at our website, which is pestworld.org. We have uh, some videos on how to remove ticks safely. Ooh, there's lots of old wives tales and, and interesting home remedies for removing ticks. But really the best way is to grasp that tick, you know, typically with a pair of tweezers, forceps uh, right behind its head and then steady pressure. Don't yank steady pressure and that tick will let go um, because their mouth parts have these barbs like fish hook barbs that hold them into your skin. If you, yeah, they don't want they don't want to leave once they get in. That's, no, they don't want to fall off. The, yeah. no. the, the feeding process takes a couple of days in most cases. But if you yank it, you can, you know remove its head and its head stays lodged in your skin. But if steady pressure and the tick does not want its head to come off. Right. Um, and they will just let go. And then right. Pull out, so interesting stuff. So again, recapping, uh, we're probably now we've been seeing the signs I've been using. Have you uh, seen this cicada safari? It's a uh, it's an app where you can report your cicada emergence, take pictures. And then uh, because in this brood X, I read there's four different species that happen to just be in this same cycle. So I guess there's like 3000 species of cicadas who knew, but uh, here we go. Six to eight weeks of cicada fun. Dr. Jim Fredericks, uh, it's going to be interesting. Thanks for joining us. Great information here on everything under the sun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Again, that the website that Jim mentioned, and it is a treasure trove of information. It's pestworld.org, pestworld.org. You can actually find a biography of Jim in there and all those great information, tick prevention tips, uh, things about West Nile virus and EEE and all the other things. And uh, there's a subsection right out the top there, Brood X Cicadas. Another great article I found, uh, the Scientific American article about this that just came out in the last couple of weeks, very helpful as well. And we've got all kinds of information about this on AccuWeather.com. So we'll be following the story as it continues to creep through the next several weeks. I know I had to get another one of those in. What we are getting in next is an interview with our friend, Dr. Liz Bentley from Armets. Yes, the Weather Photographer of the Year contest for 2021 continues about halfway through the submission period. We'll check in with Liz about how that's going, get you information about the contest and more. That's coming up next. This is Episode 9 of our Spring Series of Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Listen to Weather Insider every weekday for a discussion on trending weather news. You'll get detailed insight into major weather events and learn the why behind the weather. Just subscribe to Weather Insider on your favorite podcast platforms today. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun here from AccuWeather.com. I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore. We are so proud to be partnering once again with the Royal Meteorological Society for the 2021 Royal Meteorological Society Weather Photographer of the Year Contest. Third time we've partnered with those great folks and its chief executive of Armets. Dr. Liz Bentley joins me to talk about where we are as we get ready to go from spring into summer and get ready to view all these great submissions. Liz, welcome back. Um, first of all, you know, you, we were talking before we got on the air here and we're both lamenting how chilly it is here uh, in the month of May. As uh, you know, uh, we talked about this with Paul Pastelock last week and everything under the sun. There was actually a little another little sudden stratospheric warming event that came mid to late April and it's plunged some cold air down. Uh, here in the Northeast, in the Great Lakes, we had some snow and some cold temperatures. And I know you were telling me that probably one of the chilliest uh, mid to late springs that you can remember in England and Great Britain. Yeah, in England and, and also across most of Europe, if I'm honest, um, very low temperatures. And just looking at April, the month of April uh, in the UK, so we saw one of the coldest Aprils on record, particularly if you look at overnight temperatures, the minimum temperatures. So uh, way down three degrees below where the average is. And that was partly due to this north northerly blast, so an Arctic blast. Um, but we had high pressure 
that dominated and uh, clear skies at night. We lost that blanket of clouds, so really good radiation nights. So those mm. temperatures were really dropping away overnight. Uh, and then we went into May, similar conditions. We've had snow across certainly the northern half of the UK, not just at high levels over the, the highlands of Scotland, but but down mm-hmm. to lower levels. We we had a football match here in, in the UK in, in Manchester. Man- Manchester City were playing and they had snow on the ground. Yeah, I which, watched that. Yeah, I'm a Man City. I'm a blue moon yeah. all the way girl <laughs> so it's so again you know yeah, to see to see right. snow in in the min, in the center of manchester in a city you know right. in may was, was especially when you guys don't get snow that often in the winter so yeah. i mean it's just a little reversal of fortune here so well at least it makes opportunities for people to take interesting weather photos right when they're getting out of season stuff so that's why we're here we're talking with uh uh, Dr. Liz Bentley from our Mets here and uh, getting an update on um, the weather photographer of the year competition for 2021, which AccuWeather is proud to be a uh, supporter of and, and sponsor of. And the submission time is open, Liz, and you've got some results of already people streaming images into you guys, right? Yeah, so the competition opened on the 29th of April. So we've been open just over 10 days or so now. Uh, and we've already had 1,700 entries wow. from over, well, nearly 700 photographers wow. right around the world. And some of those images we're sharing on social media. So if you if you are a Twitter follower or Facebook follower of Armets, you'll see uh, some of those images that we're showcasing. Uh, we're also doing a little bit of a deep dive into uh, some past images so looking at some of the images focusing on rainfall or droughts and having a you know a bit of an explainer around you know what causes droughts and you know why we get rain and those kind of things so oh, that's cool so you're you're taking past images and then you're kind of kind of taking and using it as a teaching opportunity is yeah that's about. right so to just educate people about the the different weather phenomena that we've you know seen uh, in in a lot of these photographs so again at the armets website um you can you can have a look at a lot of the uh, the images, both from this competition, but also, as I say, from from some of the previous uh, competitions with some explainers as well. How much more time do people have to uh, get their entries in now? Are we getting uh, getting close to the deadline? So the competition stays open until the 29th of June. So there's okay. still a good month and a half really to go before we close. Then there's an, another opportunity later in the year. So we'll do the judging in July and we'll shortlist the images and share them. And then we go into a public vote. So there's right. another opportunity at the end of August into September for people to engage with the competition again. But if people want to submit an image for this year, then they've got until the 29th of June. Okay, so about uh, from when this drops here mid-May, about another five or six weeks. And again, we let people know, I think sometimes people think, well, I have to take a picture in that period, right? I have to take it there at the beginning of the year. But no, we're we're accepting pictures from the past. How far back can you go to to submit an image uh, from a past weather event? Yeah. So, I mean, typically we'd be looking for something that's been taken in the last 12 months and that's what we'd like to see. But, you know, we will get some images going a little bit further back than that as well. But, you know, so it doesn't have to be during this period when the competition's open. So maybe something that's been taken during 2020 into 2021 uh, are really the kind of images that we're looking for. So so you can pick things from different seasons, which is really what we're looking for. Obviously, as you say, it's been cold with you and cold with us even into this spring. And we've obviously got the winter season where we saw lots of snow. So we expect to get some good winter images coming in. But even from last year to, to get some images from autumn, you know, the beautiful kind of colours we get in autumn would be really good to see some of those as well. Again, so you have till the end of June to submit your photograph. And again, we also have different divisions. We have the general weather photographer of the year competition. And then we also have a separate uh, grouping for for youngsters, right? We uh, kind of highlight the work of uh, folks uh, 18 and under. Yeah, that's right. So so we've been running these two categories now for a few years. Uh, so the, the Young Weather Photographer of the Year is for ages 13 to 17, and then the, the, the General Weather Photographer of the Year for kind of 18 and over. But we've introduced a third category this year. So we, we have had in the past a number of images that you clearly have come from smartphones and mobile phones, you know, fantastic quality images. But we 
we have also recognised that I think people have been a little bit reluctant to enter a weather competition by sending in a photo that they took on their on their mobile phone. So we've opened a separate category for, for mobile phone images only and uh, hoping to encourage a lot more mm-hmm. people because there are some great photos taken just on a phone. You don't need a professional camera to take images. Have you seen that uh, split in the uh, entry so far? Have you seen the results that you were hoping to by adding that new category? Absolutely so. So uh, the the 1,700 entries that I referred to that we've had so far split across all three of those categories. So it's great to see that, you know, we're getting entries coming in for for all three of them. Dr. Liz Bentley with uh, the Royal Meteorological Society, uh, again, teaming here with AccuWeather, second year in a row now and third time overall with the Royal Meteorological Society Weather Photographer of the, uh, the Year contest. Again, we'll uh, submit till the end of June. Uh, we'll take some time. You, Jesse Farrell from AccuWeather and the other judges will take a look and then we'll have a list where we as the public, once we get later on in the summer, early fall, we as the public can do a little judging Uh, It's kind of a a separate kind of judging than you will do uh, for the competition itself. But I think um, it's kind of interesting to see what you all like. We saw this last year and then what the public likes. And it's not always the same thing. Right. So the public likes some things that maybe the uh, the actual judges didn't didn't see the first time or didn't didn't maybe appreciate like the public does. Yeah. So this will be the sixth year we've run this competition and we've run a public vote every year and we've never had the public vote being the same as the, the overall same, winner. Right, yeah. So so it's great. And, and you know, people have uh, a very different people look for different things in these images. So that's perfectly fine. And it means that we've got more winners of, uh, you know, the different categories. Mm, so that's great right. as well. All right. So um, anything going on out there over there in Europe, uh, weather wise, news wise that you might want to catch us up on, uh, Liz, other than this unseasonably chilly uh, spring here? Uh, Anything else? I know last time we were on, we talked about some of the you know, it's been uh, several months now since the European folks went to a free uh, situation with their, their modeling data and stuff. Maybe just catch us up what you think that result has been here in the last several months since that occurred. Have you seen something tangible from that that's been positive? Yeah, so I, I haven't seen any any verification statistics to kind of back it up, but definitely some anecdotal uh, experiences of people seeing an improvement there. I think the other big news to mention, um, which was announced maybe a week or so ago now, is the Met Office are partnering with Microsoft uh, to develop their new supercomputer. And that will be a fundamental step change in the quality uh, of uh, forecasts, both for weather forecast, but for the climate model forecast as well. So the kind of predictions that go out, you know, a century uh, mm-hmm. in, into the future. Uh, and that will be a huge step change uh, for them. So a massive partnership for the Met Office. And I think they're really excited about, how, well, you know, how that's going to develop. And that starts pretty much immediately in the next few months. So it's a project that will probably span two years, but will get going in a few months time. And then you'll slowly see this new kind of supercomputer suite appear uh, to replace the, the the old system. In case folks aren't aware, the Met Office or the UK Met is the equivalent in the National Weather Service here in our country. And Royal Meteorological Society is kind of equivalent to the American Meteorological Society. So it's a it's a, a group that's based on education and and trying to teach and and help the professional meteorologists, uh, you know, enhance their lives and enhance their profession. So uh, yeah, I'm I'm sure that sounds exciting too. Um, how about uh, you know just kind of your thoughts about folks in Great Britain and getting ready to come out of the pandemic, come out of the mm-hmm. the spring and get ready to go for summer? Do you kind of feel that kind of push going on now where people are getting vaccinated and getting ready to chomp it at the bit to get out there and enjoy the summer? Yes, absolutely. So when we went into our first lockdown last March, March 2020, the weather here was beautiful. You know, it was blue skies, temperatures well above average. We, we certainly haven't had that this spring. So, <laughs> And I think people are just optimistic as we come out of our lockdown. So we've we've got another deadline next Monday, the 17th of May, and then the June the 21st is, is when we hopefully come fully out of lockdown. And I think people are hoping the summer will, will treat us to something special here in the UK. 
for us, I guess, as an organization, we start to think about getting back into work. So we've been home working now for right. 16 months. But I don't know what it's like in the US organizations like ourselves and, you know, even companies that we we partner with are considering about the new norm for working. So, you know, I think we'll end up with a blended approach of people working from home some of the time and in the office some of the time. I think, yeah, I think it depends. I know we're here at AccuWeather kind of aiming for about middle of June to get back most of our people I really think it depends on the position. I mean, if or or the the job tactic that you need. Yeah. I mean, I find in person collaboration sometimes better in meteorology than um, the time that takes to do things over Zoom and stuff. But that's just me personally. Um, obviously, I, I think there are advantages both ways. But yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how this transforms things. So again. Till the end of June, June 29th, right? That's the deadline for submission. Yep, plenty of time. Um, if you if you log on to the website, uh, so you can get that via the Royal Met Society's website, rmets.org, and yeah, straight through and upload. Uh, you get up, uh, you can upload five photographs per photographer. If you'd like more information about the contest, go to the website rmets r m e t s dot org, or come to accuweather.com and search weather photographer of the year. You'll find information. You can follow Liz on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is D-R-L-I-Z-B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. Dr. Liz Bentley, B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. From the Weather Photographer of the Year contest to our weather for the next few days. Bill Dagger is up next with me as we talk about the weather for this upcoming weekend and the week beyond. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. This podcast is sponsored by NHTSA. Every year, children die from being left alone in cars. If you see a child left unattended, call 911 immediately. Welcome back to Everything Under the Sun with uh, meteorologist Dean DeVore, your host here as we continue on in our spring series and our focus of uh, this segment, the cicadas. Great to talk about that here in the last segment. Rewind it if you want to learn as much as you can. I've been bugging uh, Bill Dager to come back on the show with us here in this final segment. Yes, to do our normal weather for this upcoming week and week beyond. And, you know, I went away for a week. I was out uh, away from the office last week, wasn't doing my normal stuff. Still did the podcast from uh, Columbus, Ohio, and uh, did that while I was doing some other things with the NCAA volleyball championship. But, you know, while I went away, the weather really went downhill in the Great Lakes in the Northeast for about a week. I feel like I'm slowly building it back, (laughs) uh, Bill, here to some nice stuff. Uh, But, you know, typical springtime challenges here in this upcoming forecast. And uh, certainly um, in the week ahead, some interesting weather to come. But, uh, wow, what a stretch of weather there for a week or so. And now, you know, I, you know, talked to Paul Passlock last week. There was a another little stratospheric sudden warm up that kind of pushed another pretty big batch of cold air down. It seemed like a monthly occurrence the last few months. We get a, about a week of that. And it was at, centered on the Great Lakes and even spilled over into the Northeast. But it feels like things are trying to get back to normal in some of those areas here as we go into this upcoming weekend weekend. Yeah, the most uh, severe example of that sudden stratospheric warming event, of course, back in February there when Texas dealt with that severe outbreak of cold weather. Of course, we had a bunch of winter storms impacting the east. Of course, now we're into May, so it's going to be a little bit of a different flavor when you have those events. And boy, you're right, 10 to 20 degrees below normal the past week to week and a half across the Midwest and Northeast. But Starting to see that light at the end of the tunnel. At least we got to get back to normal here the next few days, and then maybe we can talk about going above normal after that by next week. And, you know, it seemed to me that one of the things about this one, this one locked in a little bit longer. Some of those other, the, the one that one in February, it was deep and it was bad, but then it just kind of rebounded again. And then we got another one, I think, in March. But this one hung on a little bit. And I think we're going to see, you know, some of the residual effects of that, especially. As we go into the weekend, I mean, we're all hankering for great weather. I know uh, as we record this Thursday into Friday, we've had a couple of a rebound days here, but we're still dealing with 
and a, and a process that we're familiar with this time of year. Sometimes it's just frustrating because we'd like it to be better the whole day. But we start out with some nice sunshine, but then it self-destructs into clouds that can produce a, a shower, make the afternoon not so nice for a while. But then it looks like uh, once the uh, the energy of the day and the heating of the day goes away, those clouds go back to uh, mainly clear skies. And we're going to see that at times it's going to be kind of a pick your spots where that's occurring as we go through this weekend. Yeah, it's it's going to be a gradual warm up in the northeast, especially when we're talking about temperatures aloft. If it's very cold in the upper levels of the atmosphere on these days with sunshine, that's what gives you the cumulus clouds, the sprinkles and showers. We have a couple more days of that to contend with into the weekend. Then after that, uh, I think it's not so much. The, the temperatures delivering the clouds and showers, but little waves of low pressure that are arriving, riding uh, from the Midwest to the Northeast. It's what we call a split flow in the jet stream. So it's, it's going to warm up, but it's not, you know, where the jet streams well to our North and we're dry. We're going right. to have these showers and storms come through with the warmer weather. Yeah. I, well, let's talk about that when we get to next week I, I, for the weekend though, I do want to, there is one area I think we need to highlight. And we've been talking about that in the office a lot. It's that, area in the middle of the country where there seems to be a battleground between the chilliest air and then that warmer air trying to push up. And so I think there's going to be some real rounds of heavy rain, showers and thunderstorms, uh, central plains. Um, You know, you're talking about states like Nebraska, down into Kansas and over into Missouri and up into southern parts of Iowa and even over into central Illinois as we go through the weekend. Could be some areas there that pick up multiple rounds of showers and thunderstorms that could cause some localized flooding. Um, you know, it's been fairly dry in some of those areas here the last uh, couple of weeks, Bill. So it's it's kind of catch-22. It's bad timing in some of those areas. But some of this is needed. Doesn't think it creates many major flooding problems, but some issues, no doubt. Yeah, absolutely. This is the time of year you want the rain, especially in the plains. And you're right, the first round of rain and thunderstorms uh, gets going probably later Friday into Saturday morning. We'll have multiple rounds then later Saturday into Sunday, uh, like you said, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa. And then by the time we get to uh, next week, uh, toward the middle of next week, the focus shifts a little further south into the southern plains and the Mississippi Valley. Yeah, it's not like a classic setup for severe weather. We'll have a few severe storms there every couple of days and and the threat of, uh, you know, these heavy storms bringing a couple of inches of rain. But you're right. This is the time of year they could use that rain. One other area that may see some showers is out west. There's a kind of a little dip in this uh, weekend jet stream that will bring some cooler air, but uh, maybe some showers, uh, mountains in uh, California and in Nevada. Looks dry and pretty nice up in the Pacific Northwest, actually a little warmer than average in the northern plains. Let's get into early next week, and I do want to talk about that. Now, in the winter, we see pretty much one jet stream over us here in the lower 48 dividing the really cold air from the warmer air. So we get into this time of year, as as Bill alluded to earlier, the jet stream actually splits. So you've got the real cold air still locked in Canada. You got a kind of a moderate zone, but even that's going to get a little warm here early next week, all the way you know over the top of that moderate zone. New York, if you go back through the Northern Plains and the Northern uh, parts of the Pacific Northwest are going to be pretty warm. Then there's a a secondary jet that's coming through um, California, kind of undulates through the central plains in the southeast. And that's going to bring some showers and thunderstorms continuing. That stuff that we're seeing over the weekend starts kind of slowly pushing eastward. But it looks like some wet patterns, some uh, repeated progressive showers and thunderstorms there in the middle of the country and then spreading into the Ohio Valley here as we get into the first part of next week. Yeah. And and the big thing is that with the two jet streams, that northern branch of the jet stream is lifting north. That's where you want to be if you want to see the warmer temperatures. You at least want that northern branch to be to your north. But yeah, the southern branch will definitely be coming into play here across, you know, really much of the lower 48. An area of high pressure at the surface along the eastern seaboard will try to keep that rain and thunder off uh, to the west, but it eventually gives in. And in the mid Atlantic, by the time you get to Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and even beyond, rounds of rain and thunder moving through. Now, computer models have been, you know, going back and forth, some north, some further south with each uh, successive run. So hard to pinpoint exactly where that heavy rain corridor will be. But 
right now I kind of peg it right from the central plains into the Ohio Valley and the southern mid-Atlantic here from the weekend into early next week. So things that you'll need to consider now over the next several days and keep you up to date uh, with all these forecasted details on your AccuWeather.com app and with our AccuWeather network. You know, we've been talking cicadas and, um, you know, so the meteorological kind of uh, kind of tie-ins here is it, it, this emergence is really based on the areas where soil temperatures are getting up to around 54 degrees or so. And then as uh, Jim talked about in that last segment, it seems like a, a nice warm rain can precede that. Uh, have you, did you, uh, I gave Bill uh, the cicada safari app bills our resident twitter guy and app guy and kind of likes information flow so i was looking at the map here as we record this on friday we're starting to see emergence now coming up the i-99 corridor here in pennsylvania bill looks like most of the emergence has been down through the mid-atlantic states and out in parts of the midwest and uh, i had uh, some folks tell me when i was out in, in ohio yesterday that they were getting into that so looks like um, the emergence is on the move north and east it's going to be interesting to see that here over the next couple of weeks and hear it i guess is the most thing that we'll be doing with it absolutely yeah it's kind of like tracking earlier in the spring we watched you know that map that shows where where leaves are, are currently <laughs> right. on trees and yep. it's fun to see that to advance north so i guess it's kind of like the cicadas here. And right. I have a friend who's on, on TV in, in the Harrisburg market and he's oh, been yeah. all over the cicada, uh, you know, phenomenon. And he pointed out that JLo and Ben Affleck uh, last were together 17 years ago <laughs> and they're together again now, apparently. So well, a connection perhaps. Uh, maybe this is my third go around with this brood brood X. <laughs> and, and, you know, I had a couple of people say, well, you know, it seems like they say it's the 17 year cicadas every few years and and that's because there's multiple broods i think there's yeah. 12 different broods and then those areas can overlap we're in the northern part of the lower 48 17 year cycles there's some of these cyclical cicadas that are 13 year old cycles uh the 13 year cycles that are born in the south so yeah lots to learn and it's going to be interesting i i love it i think it's uh it's the soundtrack of summer hearing cicadas now we're going to get it all summer long bill have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Thank you. Wow, that uh, wraps up a busy Episode 9 here in the spring series of uh, Everything Under the Sun. Thanks again to Dr. Jim Fredericks. So much great information about cicadas. We'll keep you up to date on that. Probably have some updates here on the show as we go through the next few months and also on AccuWeather.com. Also, thanks to Dr. Liz Bentley from Armets as we continue to get ready for the Weather Photographer of the Year as the conversation and competition progresses. We'll keep you up to date on that. And Bill Dagger will uh, certainly be heard on WBBM in Chicago on weekends, other great radio stations across the country from our AccuWeather service, and you'll read them on AccuWeather.com as well. Friends, that'll do it. Episode 10 next week, we're going to talk about something that um, we've been reading about here meteorologically in the last couple of months. It looks like uh, from the researches, the lightning capital of America is shifted. It used to be Florida, the most lightning strikes and problems with fatalities, but it looks like those numbers are shifted to another state. Where is that? We'll tell you next week. We'll also do some more checking on late spring and early summer stuff as we continue to roll on as the meteorological spring dwindles into the second half of this month of May. For all of us from AccuWeather, all our great team members across the world, and for my executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, have a great week. I'm a meteorologist, Dean DeVore. Thanks for listening. This is Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com.